X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Thursday, July 30th. A good day to you know what. You know what it is. Subscribe to The Local. Share it with a friend. Rate, review, give it five stars. Today, back in the day, July 30th, 1968, construction began at the Trojan Nuclear Power Plant in Columbia County. Oregon's only nuclear plant about 12 miles north of St. Helens. PGE, Portland General Electric, was the named owner. They began serious planning in 1967, eventually choosing a site owned by the Trojan Powder Company. The head of the Atomic Energy Commission, a guy named Admiral Louis Strauss, persuaded PGE he could operate a reactor creating energy that would be, and I'm quoting, too cheap to meter. When it came online, it was the biggest plant of its kind. It ended up costing $450 million. Here's a line from BGE's 1966 annual report. The era of wholly economical hydroelectric power was ending. Utilities would soon begin the transition to forms of thermal power, such as coal. Inevitably, the report continued, nuclear power will be a major factor. It turned out, though, that Trojan's high construction costs and the constant maintenance problems meant the energy wasn't cheap. Meanwhile, the no-nukes movement was growing. Treat that as a foreboding teaser. On another day back in the day, we might tell the story of the fall of Trojan. Today, we'll start with a quick six headlines. Ben DeJarnet from Bridgeliner joins to review the week's COVID data, and we'll continue our focus on the special election for the city council with part one of my and DJ Ambush's interview with Loretta Smith. No relation. Ballots are due less than two weeks from now on August 11th. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Federal troops will phase out of Portland starting today. On Thursday, all Customs and Border Protection and ICE officers are leaving downtown Portland. This doesn't mean it's an end to increase policing downtown. The Federal Protective Service will remain stationed at the courthouse, and they will be joined by state troopers. State troopers will begin with a two-week patrol. They'll be stationed at the courthouse and in mobile units around the city. The deal was coordinated by the governor, Kate Brown, acting Homeland Security Chief Chad Wolf and Vice President Mike Pence, it says here. Brown also announced that federal officers will clean up the courthouse and remove the graffiti. When Chad Wolf announced the deal separately from Kate Brown, his statement took a different tone. He said Homeland Security would continue to reevaluate the situation before withdrawing entirely. The development is hoped to be a de-escalation of tensions between law enforcement and Black Lives Matter protesters. Over the past weeks, federal officers faced criticism for their use of tear gas, rubber bullets, pepper balls, and pepper spray. They've also been criticized for overstepping their power and job descriptions. Federal agencies are currently facing three different lawsuits related to their actions in Portland. And while federal officers are leaving town, other federal agents are being deployed to cities all across America. That means Detroit, Milwaukee, Cleveland, Chicago, Seattle, and Albuquerque. I know it's Albuquerque, but when you know it like I do, it's Albuquerque. Your daily dose of data, eight new deaths. Not as bad as yesterday. Still pretty bad. 304 new cases. We're up to 17,721 cases in the state. 311 total deaths. Nationwide, we've crossed 150,000 people dying confirmed from COVID-19. Multnomah County had the most cases with 82. Washington County second with 51. Clackamas County third with 28. One thing noted by the health authority, sporadic cases are on the rise while large outbreaks are diminishing. In Washington state, the Department of Health is showing a total of 54,205 cases in Washington and 1,548 deaths. Providence Health is denying a higher rate of workers' comp claims than any other employer since COVID began. Healthcare workers are consistently at risk of contracting COVID-19 at work as they fight the virus. The idea of workers' comp is it is there to protect them. Providence Health, a huge healthcare company, decides 
which workers' comp claims get accepted and which get denied. And in Oregon, Providence Health has denied a higher rate of workers' comp claims than any other employer or insurer. Here are the numbers. They're pretty stark. State data shows that about 26% of workers' comp claims have been denied since the start of the pandemic. But get this, Providence Health has denied 93% of all claims filed. They're putting the onus on workers to prove they got sick at work. But with all the uncertainties around COVID-19, that can be pretty hard to prove. At the moment, more than 10% of Oregon's COVID-19 cases are healthcare workers. And here's some original research. I don't know if you can do such a thing as original research, but here's some research I did. According to the Oregon Health Authority, back in 2015 and 2016, based on Oregon's healthcare workforce supply, there are about 120,000 people working in the healthcare industry. Let's say maybe that's gone up to 150,000 people now. That's less than 5% of the population works in healthcare, but they're 10% of the COVID cases. So far, 17 states have adopted policies that presume people working in high-risk industries like healthcare got sick at work. That means workers can't be denied coverage. So now the question is, will Oregon become a state that offers presumptive coverage for COVID-19? Governor Kate Brown called a panel with the Management Labor Advisory Committee to wrestle with the question. Maybe we'll find out soon. Reimagine Oregon is trying to dig up systemic racism at its root. A coalition of black-led organizations and activists has recently come together calling themselves Reimagine Oregon. On Tuesday morning, the group unveiled a set of policy demands to combat the racism embedded in our state's past and present. Unsatisfied with acknowledgement and apology, they are calling for divesting and investing. The big list of policy demands here are some of them. $2.5 million fund for black leaders to rethink community safety in Oregon ending homeless outreach centered in the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office, a ban on chokeholds and tear gas, demilitarization of the police, affordable child care for every Oregonian, a relief fund for black Oregonians affected by COVID-19, rent forgiveness for renters affected by COVID-19, decriminalization of fare evasion at public transit, and more. Khalid Thorne-Ladd, one of the Reimagine Oregon's many organizers, said this, Oregon, now is your chance to prove that black lives matter in a tangible and actionable way. The city elections office has fined Ted Wheeler for campaign violations. A $2,000 fine this week. The violation failing to disclose required information about campaign donors. Wheeler also accepted more than $500 from individual donor Dan Petrosich, a commercial real estate developer. New rules went into place this May about how much money a candidate can take. They can't take more than $500. Wheeler's campaign manager, Amy Rathfelder, said the focus on Wheeler's donors is, and I'm quoting, borderline harassment. This is now the sixth time that Mayor Wheeler's campaign has been cited by the election office. The Portland Book Festival will be going virtual this year. The Portland Book Festival is typically a major event drawing over 10,000 visitors to celebrate all things literary. But this year, like so many other events, will be going online. Don't despair. The festival expanded from one day to 17 days of author talks and readings. All I want to do is a Zoom, Zoom, Zoom and the reading room. And unlike other years, admission to the events will be free. Events will take place as live streams over Zoom and radio broadcasts in partnership with another radio station called OPB. The Portland Arts and Lecture Series has also moved online for the time being. Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts, will continue to organize events for Portland book lovers. He said, and I'm quoting, Literature, stories, and dialogue matter always, especially right now. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next, Ben DeJarnett from Bridgeliner with an update on Oregon COVID data. Good morning, Ben. How you Great. doing? Good morning. Good to be back. So let's talk once more about Oregon's coronavirus numbers. At the moment, there appears to be a good news, bad news dynamic. What can you tell us about the good and the bad from our state's latest reports? 
Sure. Well, let's start with the good news. Uh, so the state released its weekly testing report yesterday. Um, and uh, for the first time in several weeks, the percentage of tests coming back positive uh, went down. It actually went down a full percentage point. Um, uh, so as you know from from talking together for the last few weeks that we just watched that number steadily rise, steadily rise and get closer and closer to the national average, um, which is about eight, seven, eight, nine percent right now. Um, Oregon had creeped up around 6%, uh, the latest testing report uh, last week, the test coming back positive uh, closer to, to 5%, um, maybe just a little bit under. So uh, that's good news. Um, I think the, the flip side of that coin um, is that we now know that, that there are delays of one to two weeks for many test results to come back. Um, so you can still walk into many clinics and hospital systems uh, that have access to these kind of instant testing or, or quick turnaround testing and, and get results in 24 hours. But um, for the hospital systems, the, the clinics, uh, anywhere that's sending their uh, their tests to commercial labs um, uh, to to get those results. That's that process is taking one to two weeks. So when when we get these daily updates from the Oregon Health Authority, some of that data is tests that happened yesterday. Some of that data is tests that happened one to two weeks ago, and we don't know the exact proportions of that. Um, so it means that potentially uh, we're even we're in an even better spot. Um, today than we thought than we think we are based on the data it's possible we're in a worse spot we just don't know because of this lag that's uh created in the testing and, and that really comes back to the uh the failures starting at the federal government to um to take this serious seriously early on and to really think about uh testing capacity and and kind of creating that supply chain so um if folks are confused about, or if they have questions, not about being confused, but if you uh, have questions about the volume of testing, are, are those numbers of tests uh, going up? Is there more easy accessibility to get for people to get a test? There, yeah, the broad trend is yes. Um, if you look at the number of tests being done per week um, over the last few months, there's kind of been a steady rise in that number. Um, there does appear to be some evidence that we're kind of reaching a plateau. Um, mm -hmm. We were about the same last week as we were the week before. Um, and there's some potentially troubling signs that uh, that, that testing shortages could um, emerge again. Uh, if, if more states continue to have spikes and the demand goes up and um, potentially some companies start to focus more on creating flu testing kits. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why um, why we could see kind of a, a, a point of testing um, deficit as opposed to what we're seeing now, which is people can, can basically get tested if they want to, if they need to. Um, in Oregon, but they might wait a week or two because there's that backlog and actually processing the test. So um, yes, as of, as of right now, it, it seems like um, uh, it seems like testing supplies are, are still holding up. Uh, although I, I did talk with someone at the Multnomah, Multnomah County Health Department last week, and they're uh, a little bit concerned as they get more calls from um, 
from folks who say that their employers are requiring them to get tested and to test negative before they can return to work. Um, and that's kind of creating a lot of demand for testing among people who don't have any symptoms, are very low risk, but because they uh, have this mandate from their employers, they're asking to get tested. And that may be taking the testing supply away from uh, folks who, who need to do more, um, uh, who, who are in high risk professions, who, um, uh, who may have symptoms. So I think that's another thing to watch as we go forward. Yeah, that's a really interesting new wrinkle in the story of needing more tests out in the world as folks go back to work. And if you're if you're an employer, don't don't do that. <laughs> it, doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't make sense um, because if someone tests negative today, right, um, they may get infected tomorrow, and and that negative test doesn't mean anything. And but you've given them the kind of the green stamp to come back to work and. And then they come back to work and they get your office infected. So it, it's it's bad policy and it's bad for public health. So uh, spread the word. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Ben. Yeah, thanks, Emily. Bridgeliner. It's an email newsletter all about Portland. Delivered fresh at 7 a.m. You can read it now at bridgeliner.com. That's also where you can sign up to get the newsletter in your inbox. In less than two weeks, on August 11th, ballots are due for City Council Position 2 in the City of Portland. The seat that the late Nick Fish held will quickly go to work managing crisis, engaging the community, and planning recovery. In this runoff, Loretta Smith and Dan Ryan are asking for your vote. In the coming days, you'll hear from Loretta here on The Local. The full hour-long interviews with each candidate are available on your favorite podcast platform under X-Ray's Vision 2020 Candidate Interview Series. Today is part one of DJ Ambush and Jefferson Smith's interview with Loretta Smith, discussing her accomplishments and budget priorities. So I'm sure you've been you've been doing a, a ton of interviews. I'm sure this is this a season. ton. A ton. Okay. Yes. What are you not getting asked enough about? What what's getting missed? I think what's getting missed is that we're not having the opportunity, like you're giving me today, to do a re a lot of retail politics because that's what I like to do. I like to be out and about, and because of COVID and the protesting, that makes it really hard. Um, but I would like folks to ask me more about my accomplishments uh, at the county, what I care about, why I care about stuff, um, keep things current in terms of police accountability and um, police reform, what does that look like for me? Hmm. Um, I don't think we we got that out as much. I think Jefferson talked to me about it when we first came out, but you know, I'm an African-American woman who raised a black son in this this community. And we have a lot of um, social justice things we need to correct around the police. And I think that I should be asked more about what is my voice, what is my thought on uh, police accountability and police reform. Is your voice getting drowned out in that discussion? And if so, how come? I, you know, I think the black voice in general is getting drowned out. Um, when, you know, whenever I get an opportunity to talk to someone in radio or TV or anyone who's interested, I talk about police reform. I talk about the five point plan where I want to take away qualified immunity, take $50 million off of the $250 million uh, budget. And I want to make sure that 
those rubber bullets, uh, the chokehold, and the tear gas that they're doing down at the, um, the Justice Center, that they stop using that and have an independent um, uh, community review that's put on the ballot measure. So for me, I think, you know, it's, it's real simple. There are simple things that people want. Uh, then you have a more dramatic approach where people want to totally defund the police. And I think that there is a difference um, in totally defunding and having an opportunity to, to recreate or re reimagine what public safety could look like. But you have to have that in play. I know I want to reallocate some of those dollars from the police budget and put it into social services so that it can help black and brown communities, you know, purchase homes, um, small business loans to give wraparound supports for our young people. And so those are the kind of things that I would much prefer to put those dollars in. Um, 50 million is not, a, is not a stretch at all because before Danielle Outlaw came, she, um, she looked at the situation here and she said she thought we needed more police. Well, she got it. She got an additional budget. They have not used that budget in the last two years because they haven't been able to, to hire new police. And so for me, if we're gonna reimagine how our community is gonna look, we need to take those dollars that were put in there, which is about $50 million, and we need to reallocate those dollars. Of that 50 million we're talking about reallocating, what would be the highest priority? Um, I think social and economic development for black and brown communities, BIPOC communities. Um, I think it's so important to make sure that those businesses in the black community, that they're able to not just survive, but to thrive mm -hmm. after COVID. And I don't want us to go back to where we were. I want us to go to a new normal. I want us to go to better than where we were. Because right now, we have an opportunity to go big and go big in a big way. If we're not gonna go big as a community, then we just need to go home. Because right now, in this moment, we have a moment to really carve out what our community can look like for the next 20 years. It could set the foundation for us going forward. And that's why I wanna be a Portland City Council person. I have a two-year-old granddaughter and a six-year-old granddaughter. I wanna leave a city like a city that I grew up in, where my grandparents were able to purchase a home, $15,000 and a big old Portland style house in Northeast Portland, that now that's worth $600,000 or more. And they could send their kids to, to college and, and, and retire. You can't do that now. People are so rent burdened. They're trying to figure out how to um, make ends meet. Uh, even prior to COVID, people were working, you know, two and three jobs just to make it. And so I want to put in some policies, you know, I want to go from protest to policy, to actually putting resources into the community. And that's where I'm best at. That is my best and my strongest suit is to be able to match up a problem with a policy and put a, put a, a dollar amount behind it. Let's jump off that for a second. You said that one of the things that's been drowned out in the, midst, uh, in the midst of COVID-19, in the midst of an uprising around black lives and police brutality, one of the things that's been missed, and, and I would argue the dynamics of this campaign, 
And I will say, just so I lay it out there, I don't think you've been treated fairly in a myriad ways during this campaign. And I, and I even want to talk about some of that. But just to just to share with listeners my own bias, that's my bias. I'm not trying to take anything away from the other cat running. Just I don't think you've been treated fairly. No. The, uh, I find you delightful. And I don't know why everybody doesn't see that. Okay. So, so the... Uh, <laughs> You said that one of the things that's getting missed is your accomplishments. If you were going to name the three things where you connected policy, to problem to policy to resources, what are and you know don't you don't have to name three. You can pick one or two. You go to four. I can, I can name five, but I'll name three just to be just just to give you an example. I did something that no one ever did before. I was able to put two million dollars into a pot of permanent money for communities of color. I built a coalition called the Promise Coalition, and it was with Latino Network, ERCO, NEA, SEI, and and Head Start. And I put that group together because I wanted us to get prepared for the, to to apply for the federal money. And in order to apply for a federal money, you had to put a a coalition like that together that served all the different uh, demographics. I put that together and then doubled back and went to the feds my last year and got $30 million for this group. No one has ever put these kind of resources from the general fund for for organizations of color to help with wraparound supports. They said, our kids are not graduating from high school at the same rate as everyone else. We need some help. If we have more dollars, we could help more of our kids and they could graduate from high school. I saw that, I heard that. I answered that call of duty and this is why I got pretty much beat up from top of my head to the bottom of my feet. I was trying to get resources for people who had never had them before. Second, I saw, I had a town hall meeting, a black men's town hall meeting My in three months in. It was standing room only. It was almost close to 300 people from age 14 to 78. People there said, you know, back in the day, commissioner, we used to have summer jobs for our kids. We don't have any. Out of that program, I started my summer jobs program with 25 kids and I built that program over the years. Before I left, I put that program in permanent budget and we were serving 650 kids that we were paying for. I even got invited to the White House when President Obama was there for the work that I had done around summer jobs. So I don't care about that kind of thing, but I do care about being able to speak truth to power. And I was happy that me and Andrew uh, McGough from uh, Work Systems were able to go to the White House to talk about what we did. You have to be very deliberate and intentional when you're doing this kind of work. If you don't call it out specifically what you want to do, you're not going to be able to make um, make policy from politics to protest work. And you and you and you have to not be afraid. See, I was not afraid to sit there and say, "No, we're going to sit here in the budget until you pay for." Uh, 50 kids until you pay for 100 kids. And then every year I upped the kids. I doubled it. No, this year we're going to do 200 kids. And, you know, yes, I did. I held up the, the budget process like everybody else did for their projects too. But I was clear because I was one of those kids. I was one of those CETA kids. They got the JTPA money, and which is now the WIA money, um, for underserved kids to get jobs. And so it worked for me and I wanted other kids to be able to have that opportunity. So that's why I run for office. That's why I lend my voice. And I think my voice today is probably going to be more appreciated than it was while I was at Multnomah County, but we were very effective and we got some stuff done. There is no way you can pass over a hundred resolutions. I had to get two people 
over a hundred times and they weren't all the same two people. You know how it is, uh, Jefferson. So you may disagree with me, but you cannot disagree with good policy. I want to follow up on that, Loretta. You said that you think that your voice will be more appreciated in the city going forward. Why do you say that? Because right now, um, finding ways to help black communities, black and brown communities, is, is now fashionable. When I was doing, I was going uphill. And so everybody's trying to find somebody of color that they can uh, link up with to do something for, for black and brown people. And I got a lot of ideas. So um, I threw a lot of those up on the wall. That I can just pull down and say, okay, what about this? What about this? I want to do a uh, home ownership because I'm about building wealth, right? There's a lot of conversation at the city with um, uh, Chloe Udaley and Commissioner Hardesty about renters and that kind of thing. And I was a renter before, and that's what made me want to own something. I don't think we should keep our black and brown communities in affordable rental units. We need to figure out how do we help them buy a home? I bought a home working for Senator Wyden and I don't even think I even made $40,000 a year. But because there was a program that we had, I was able to get in to help me with the down payment. And then from there, it just it just flew off. And then I got rental properties in the, in the whole nine yards. But you got to start somewhere. And so I'm not always trying to talk about renting. I want to be talking to some black and brown people about buying something. And if the city really wants to do something, how about this? Some of those businesses and buildings downtown that people have boarded up and they haven't been used for, for millions of years. Let's talk about getting a, a, a group of black folks to own some of those buildings downtown. That's what I want to do. I don't want to just do social services. You know, we have to have a whole social, economic, and political agenda. And I'm about building some wealth. I know I'm trying to leave something for my grandkids. And I want everybody else in every zip code to be able to do that too. But we have to make, we have to start somewhere. Loretta, are you held to a different standard when it comes to- Yes, sir. (laughs) 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 Yes, sir. Okay. He didn't finish finish the question. (laughs) I knew what he was getting ready to say. Thanks to Ben DeJarnett and Loretta Smith for joining The Local and thank you for listening to Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.